Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Basil Donovan. Basil is an original member and the longtime bassist for Canadian country rock royalty, Blue Rodeo. Over almost four decades, Blue Rodeo have released 16 studio albums that have sold over 4 million copies, played over 2,000 shows, earned countless Juno nominations and awards, been inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, received a star on Canada's Walk of Fame, been named to the Order of Canada, and have been honoured with the Governor General's Performing Arts Award. If you know the band, you are probably familiar with frontmen Jim Cuddy and Greg Keeler. But how much do you know about that good-looking feller playing bass in the back? Let's together find out more. Welcome, Basil, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Oh, thank you, Andrew. I'm at home right now in Toronto here, and uh, I'm doing fine. Excellent. Are you currently touring with Blue Rodeo? Yes, we are. We played last night at the uh, Burning Kiln Winery up in uh, St. Williams, Ontario. And we played the night before in London, Ontario. And now I have a couple of days off. And on Wednesday, I fly up to Thunder Bay. And we start a tour that goes from Thunder Bay right across to the west, right to Victoria. Well, it must be fabulous to be back on the road playing live to actual people. It's wonderful. <laughs> what is a 20... 20- What's the 2022 Blue Rodeo tour like? Is it private planes, five-star hotels? <laughs> no, it's the regulation tour bus, travel at night, arrive in the town in the morning, you know, sound check, lunch sound check, play the show, and travel on. <laughs> you know, with, with such a massive and beloved song catalog as you have, how do you balance the set list between classic Blue Rodeo and uh, newer music? Well, you know, a lot of it depends on what the singers feel like singing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes down to that it really doesn't matter much what the rest of us think, really. You know, uh, it comes down to what, at the end of the day, if the singer doesn't want to sing a song, he's not going to put it in the set list. <laughs> True if enough. it's in the set list, he's going to skip over it, <laughs> Well, <laughs> which happens. Well, sometimes we get to a song and you look at you can do I'll look at Greg and he'll go and he'll you know know some other song like you know and that's that one's not going to happen you know. <laughs> well, let's jump right into that. There are Jim Cuddy songs and there are Greg Keeler songs, so I'll be no surprise to you, of course, that there are Jim fans and Greg fans. Does the band actively try to balance the content to your albums, and how do you balance the content for live shows? Well. There's no real conscious effort of like, you know, trying to split it up evenly. It just kind of happens that way. I think, you know, if Jim's writing the set list, he's going to be very conscious of the fact that, you know, he wants to have an equal amount of great songs in there. And mainly because, you know, he knows people want to hear those songs. But also, it takes the heat off of him having to sing, you know, all of them, right? So... He'll look at it and go like, oh, okay, Greg wants to do this song, and it's great. It's like eight minutes. That's like a nice little break for me. It's good. <laughs> the great songs tend to be the longer one, four and a five-minute pop songs. Well, he's no dummy. He knows you got to conserve your voice. Well, I was wondering if you had to jump in, Basil, and uh, mediate between them if things ever get testy, but it sounds like uh, it should be no surprise. Yeah. Let's go back all the way, if I may. We want to get the whole Basil Donovan story. 
you are not technically a Torontonian, but were certainly raised as a Torontonian. Please tell us where you were born and about your upbringing. Well, I was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but I consider myself a Torontonian because my father was in the Navy in, uh, in Halifax, and my mother's from Cape Breton Island. And what happened was my dad, my mother wouldn't, when they had me, my mother was like, you can't stay in the Navy because I'll never see you. So my dad left the Navy and he had no work. So my mother had an aunt in Toronto. So when I was one year old, on my birthday, they packed up the station wagon and they drove to Ontario. And uh, they got a, they rented a house off of my aunt in the junction of Toronto uh, around a street called Hook Avenue, which is just, uh, it runs parallel with Dundas just before it hits the big intersection at Annette. I remember it well because uh, my cousin lived on that same street. And even after we moved from there, we used to go and visit them all the time. And it was right across from Unico, maybe. I don't know. One of the four factories that made all the spaghetti and macaroni. <laughs> yeah. And we lived across the road from that. And then we moved around a little bit. But it was always in the junction area that we uh, gravitated towards. Uh, my mother, I think, wanted to stay close to her aunt who, who lived there. And, you know, they, it was a big city for them. So they were, you know, that that, that movie going down the road. Mm-hmm. That movie reminds me of my family. Because my mother and father came first. My mother had five brothers who kind of followed them one by one. And they ended up living with us for a while. They were all guitar pickers, too. They all played guitar. Oh, yeah. So uh, I was surrounded by, you know, country and rock and roll music from the time I was born. My uncles all played every. They had kitchen parties every weekend. So even though I was living in Toronto, I was still kind of living a very East Coast upbringing. And the lore goes that you picked up the guitar yourself at the age of nine. Yeah, I was about nine when I decided I wanted to play. And my uncle took me aside and he taught me this thing that he called the guitar boogie shuffle. And it was, you know, it was just a straight and 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 you know. Uh, Basically, what we would now, you know, just call a, a rockabilly riff in, in the key of E, right? Mm-hmm. They taught me that, and that was the start of things. And then uh, from then on, I, you know, I got my first three chords going. And after that, uh, I learned about three or four songs. House of the Rising Sun, you know, that was one of the more complicated ones I learned a few months later. But I think it started out with uh, Bad Moon Rising. Credence were big, really big on the charts at the time. Yep. And uh, I think the first song I could play all the way through was Bad Moon Rise. And Which it's is great because, you know, a couple of years ago, we did a tour with John Fogarty, right? Oh, wow. And opening for John Fogarty with the Jim Cuddy Band. And I actually got to talk to him about that. See, I saw you at Maple Leaf Curtains in 1970. <laughs> Isn't that great? Um, yeah, he was... And, you know, by that time, he was calling me by my first name because, like, we were on the road with him for a couple of months, right? So you get to know each other, right? Yeah. One, one day after I'd known him quite a while, I felt comfortable enough to say, actually, John, you know, my first sponsor was Creedence Clearwater. Yeah. He goes, Basil, you're making me feel old. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, your first band, Basil, was with a bunch of uh, stage band friends from high school. It was called yes. The Demons. Yes, Demon, yes. 
And what would you primarily be playing? You'd be, I guess, high school dances. Yeah, like we had a, a long list of songs like, you know, the Doobie Brothers, uh, Paul McCartney, uh, you know, High, 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 and like stuff like that. The stuff that was popular uh, at the time, the wall listened to the music and, you know, all of that Brandy or a fine girl, you know, uh, all, all of the hits of the time, right? We, we tried to play a wide variety of stuff because we had this house gig playing at a place on Vaughn. Uh, it was at St. Clair and Vaughn area. Mm-hmm. Actually, a little further up, but it was, it was uh, called the Isabella Ballroom. And it was uh, like, it was built like a cave. But on Sundays, they had this year's, a year's dance. So we played every Sunday up there. And it, it was just, you know, young, pe- young people who I went to high school with, basically, who wanted to dance. And they wanted to dance to the hits of the day. So we pretty much played everything that uh, we thought was being popular, you know? And that sounds... It sounds like it morphed nicely into the first tour you did. It was the all-star bar band, and you've described it as kind of like a human jukebox. Yes. Uh, the all-star bar band, we we tried to incorporate so- stuff that we liked as well as playing a lot of hits. You know, we tried to squeeze in, you know, album tracks from records that we liked. You know, like if I was listening to an, an Eric Clapton record that I liked or something like that, you know, we would try to force that kind of stuff that were more, a little more obscure onto the people, which worked well. It did. I mean, people liked us. You know, we had a good repertoire. The thing about, both, you know, when you're in a band like that, you have to have a repertoire of like a hundred songs, you mm-hmm. know, and then no matter what the audience you hit, you can please them. You know, if it, whether you're, whether you get a gig playing, you know, at a wedding or, you know, any kind of weird social event, you know, baptisms, you know. I, I ended up playing in high school with a lot of people who were of Italian descent. So we used to get a lot of gigs that were things like baptisms, confirmations, because they would throw big parties for that. And they'd hire a band. So uh, it was very good practice for us to playing in front of people. It was like playing, you know, at a wedding, but it was younger people. Like it was more like our age group because we were in high school at the time. Well, it sounds perfect to be on the uh, baptism confirmation circuit. That's where you got your jobs. <laughs> now, now, Basil, 1980, you went new wave. You joined the Sharks with Cleve Anderson, who was also Blue Rodeo's drummer on Outskirts and Diamond Mine. Uh, yes. wh- what was your memories of the Sharks era? Well, the Sharks was a, a big stepping stone for me because... Uh, I had been playing, uh, my, I ended up getting married very young. I was 19 years old when I got married. And the girl that I married was a really great country singer. She had a beautiful voice. And one night I went to see her play. Uh, she was guesting. She was just like a, a featured guest with this band because she sang so well at a young age. By this time, she was like 17 and... They would kind of, and she'd go with her mother and father, and she would go in and sing about five songs that night. One of them being Janis Joplin's uh, "Me and Bobby McGee," which she slayed the audience with that. And so, her mother told me I was just starting to dating her, and her mother said, "Why don't you come down 
to the Candle House Tavern on Sherburn tonight and just drop in and sit with us and, and you'll hear her sing, right? And so I got there and, and it turns out when I got there, uh, the bass player was also a paramedic, ambulance driver. Okay. And he was on the side. And first time I'd ever really seen a beeper. He got a beep that night saying, you've got to work. It's a, you know, we need you tonight. So he came over to the leader and he, of the band. He was, just, was a great guy named Tiny Edwards. <laughs> and he went over to Tiny and said, I can't play the rest of the night. Uh, they, they just called and you know, this is their deal. I've got to go. So they, Tiny walked over to the table and I was sitting there. He goes, we hear you're a bass player. I said, I'm a bass player, but at the time I was, you know, I was playing in my own band and I had another band that was playing Pog Rock, right? Which we had a rehearsed for six months before we ever played a show. And uh, I said, yeah, but we've never rehearsed. He said, they laughed at me when I said, we, we have not rehearsed. He says, get up there and play. Just play. If you don't know the song, play quiet. <laughs> you know the song, join in. Yeah. Well, we went up, I went up on stage and they started with Folsom Prison Blues. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I, of course, knew that. I knew all of these songs because of my uncles at the at the kitchen parties. So I just said to them, just let me see. I play guitar as well. So just let me see the guitar player's hands. Let me, like, if I can watch the rhythm player, the guy who's singing, if I can see his hands, I can follow along. So I did. At the end of the night, they came over and they handed me $30. I said, thank you. And what are you doing Saturday? <laughs> nice. And I said, nothing. And they said, do you want to play? Because Arthur's going to work Saturday. So, okay. So that was my start in the country world. And for the next several years, I I was a, a staple on the country scene. Like, uh, my name went into one person's book. And then it went to another person, and then the next thing you know, I was getting calls all the time. Uh, I was considered a country player, a yeah. country musician. And I just started working steadily. Uh, and I was, you know, I was still in high school, but, you know, I was getting to that point where I was finishing high school, and I was getting, you know, I was getting married and everything. And I just kept getting on gigs, gigs, gigs. So it turned out that I, was making a living playing music because they were six nights a week and a matinee on Saturday. Uh -huh. Back then, the bars didn't open on Sunday or we would have been playing Sunday, too. Uh -huh. But we didn't. But it was uh, it was a wonderful education for me because I learned so much playing with all these older people. I played with some of the greats, you know, like some of the Toronto uh country guys that were, you know, like the, the Montgiverings and Grey Penny and all, all of these guys who were just fabulous musicians, you know, they'd, they'd uh, been around a long time playing. They were kind of hitting the end of their road, whereas, you know, I think that a lot of them were feeling like, I can't do this anymore, you know, and, you know, they had a band, but they didn't really want to do it anymore. So for the first couple of years, I ended up playing with a lot of people. Who ended up kind of packing it in a little later, and there was like a whole new scene of people. But I was lucky enough to play with, you know, a lot of the really great players who were, you know, twenty years, thirty years older than me in some cases, and uh, I learned a lot. 
uh, they, you know, to keep your ears and eyes open in that kind of a scene, they've got a lot of wisdom to impart and, uh, and they can teach you a lot musically, you know? So it was a very, it was, I, I always said, you know, that was like, to me, that was like going to university. Yeah. Well, you certainly took advantage of your educational opportunities, learning as you went. You had some iterations with a reggae ska band and a punk band. But that brings us to your uh, pivotal moment, 1984. You see a wanted ad in the alternative weekly new free newspaper, Now Magazine. Basil, what did that ad say? Well, it was a, it's a strange thing because that ad, it was a friend of mine. I had a friend who was a drummer. And he was always looking for gigs for both of us, you know? And uh, anyway, he phoned that ad first. But the ad said, if you've dropped acid at least 20 times, you've lost three or four years to booze and looking good, and you can play, still keep time and play bass or drums, call Jim or Greg. <laughs> yep. Um, so my friend, Wayne, he called it. He called the ad first. He talked to Greg. And I had already been in the Sharks by this point. So he came over to my house that day and he goes, you should call these guys, you know? He said, this just sounds like your kind of music. And he said, hey, and you remember that band that opened for you at the edge, the high fives? It's those guys. It's those, those two guys. And I went, oh, Ryan, I remember the high fives. And he goes, yeah, they, they were one of the opening acts on my very first gig with the Sharks at the edge. The high fives opened. Okay. But I remember kind of briefly talking to them as they were going down to do their encore, and they decided they were going to do Heart Full of Soul. And I thought, oh, that's a great song. So I went down and I watched them. And then, you know, I had seen them once before actually open for Bob Tengarini. So it wasn't, it wasn't new to the band. But when, but I hadn't heard it from them in a few years because they had moved to New York. So I didn't know what they were doing. And then my friend Lane said, it sounds like your kind of music. So I phoned the ad and uh, I got. Jim's wife, Rena, on the phone, who was just kind of like, call me other number. Call me another number. Right. And I said, no, no, I'll just read my number. Right. I said, how would I leave my number? If they want to call me, they can. So I left her my number. And I, a couple of days later, they were, they had recruited Cleve. And they asked Cleve, hey, what about the guy in the Sharks? What's he doing? And Cleve said, oh, Basil, I haven't talked to Basil in a while. And Jim looked and said, Basil, wait a minute. I think he answered the ad. And he pulled out the list in his back pocket. He had a list of everyone who had called the ad. And there was my name. So Greg Cat grabbed the list off of him and went to the phone at the Bamboo. They were at the Bamboo Club at the time. He went to the phone and called me. And said, are you Basil from the Sharks? I said, yes. Hey, Cleese, our drummer. You want to get together and play tomorrow? I said, sure. And the next day I walked in and we kind of knew instantly that we had a band. Yeah. We started playing and Cleveland and I connected right away into old, you know, things that we would do. We had communication right away and uh, we were off and running. It was like, okay, uh, now we've got, you know, we, we handled five or six rehearsals, which isn't for us. And then one day Greg said, ask us all, uh, do you like keyboards? <laughs> and, uh, I said, yeah, I like keyboard. Well, don't try and get one. I thought he was going to get a keyboard and play it. <laughs> yeah. You know, a couple of days later, I come to rehearsal and Bobby Wiseman was sitting there. And, well, uh, dude, Bobby plays organ and he's going to be in our band. 
And that was it. So then we started rehearsing, and uh, a couple of months later, we played the rally. Well, that's amazing. No audition, no meeting. You suddenly got this band, this band is together. No audition. It was just like kind of, you're going to do it. If you're here, you're going to do it, you know? So let's go. So February 1985 at the Rivoli. Basil, what do you remember about that first gig? I remember a lot because at the time, I was playing with several other bands around town. I played with this band called The Reactors, which was Cam McGill from The Poles, right? The, the punk band The Poles. Well, their guitar player had another back over reactors and I was playing with them for a while and I was playing with several other bands too, but we were all used to like going to clubs and, you know, nobody showing up like, you, you know, and you'd be, uh, it'd be Friday night at a club and there'd be like 15 people there, you know, and the place held like 400, <laughs> you know? So that was depressing. Anyway, I remember Cleve picking me up because Clee, Clee was used to picking me up to take me to the gigs. And we drove down to the Rivoli. It was our first night, the first night, it was February 9th. And uh, he said, yeah, I wonder if anybody will be there tonight. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't know. And we got there. I walked in the back door. I took a look out. I pulled the curtain back and I peeked out and it was a full house. Wow. And I said, Cleve, he's got a full house. He went, yeah, right. He thought I was bullshitting him, right? <laughs> he thought, yeah, sure we do. And then he looked out and he went, oh, wow, we do. Oh, this is amazing. And we went on. We had been rehearsing for three months at that time. So we went on and played. And I'll never forget it because Steve Koch, the guitar player from the Demix at the time, he came backstage and he he looked at us. And he was kind of a, a friend at the time because he was in the handsome Neds. And uh, he looked at us and he said, you guys are going to be huge. Well, then we went thanks <laughs> and uh and that was it that was the start of the band uh and we we played that night we made pretty good money you know considering like i remember we split up the money and kind of went oh that was good like how did we end up getting all these people yeah it was, it was a combination of word had got around on the street that we had a new band uh keith whitaker who was the lead singer of the Demix, was working at the horseshoe at the time and he was telling everybody and in town, even though he hadn't seen us yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was still singing our praises because he liked us, all of us, very, very much, right? And uh, his word of mouth and that, and the fact that Jim and Greg had just returned from New York, I guess, you know, a lot of their their uh, high fight bands came out, and the people who used to see the Sharks, you know, the Cleve and I were in the band, so it was, Bert kind of got out that we had this new band. And right away, it was like we started playing to really good crowds. And we did, we never had to get, we never had that point where there was nobody there. Yeah. Only when we went on the road, like if we'd go to, uh, you know, some other small town like St. Catharines or something, we might hit a a slow night, you know? But in general, I mean, our first out of town gig, I'll never forget our first out of town gig was Kingston. Okay. And we played the Terrakin in Kingston. And at the end of the night, after we played our hearts out, we played really well that night, I remember. These two guys walked up to us and said, Hey, you guys are fantastic. We love you. We're a band too. We're called the Tragically Hit. Oh boy. <laughs> and it was Gord Downey and uh, Johnny Fay. <laughs> and we became friends with them. Wow. And then months later, like we were on, we had finally 
gotten some gigs. We got an agent, and we were going out to Halifax to play. And we got to the hotel in Halifax. The tragically hip were playing across the river at Misty Moon. We were playing the Crazy Horse in Dartmouth. But we were staying at the same hotel. So we ended up having big parties every night, getting to know each other. And that's how the Blue Rowdy on the Tragically Hip became best of buddies. We, we have been friends right from the start. Wow. Well, that's quite amazing how the two uh, arcs of those two bands came together so early. Basil, yeah. I wanted to ask you, who came up with the name Blue Rodeo and why? Well, that was Greg. And uh, how it happened was when they were living in New York City, really got tired like greg really hated the popular music of the time and like he said you know he said oh it was just awful like everyone was playing these synthesizers and you know the biggest band in the world was culture club and you know and he said nothing against culture club they had catchy songs and everything but he said like you know he said i really missed guitar music he said i wanted to hear some twang and some you know he said so i started listening to Dwight. he goes i was listening to dwight yoakam's first recording is that in the village everyone everyone was talking about this this new you know this new sound and he was going to see this guy named ned sublet and ned sublet was this this uh guy who kind of had a you know he, he was he was an oddball it was very psychedelic country music okay and he would one night instead of having a bass player he'd have a tuba player you know what i mean <laughs> that's different uh, like he's that type of guy and he his songs were very funny you know he had like these these he was gay and he had these songs like he had that one song it was uh cowboys are free but they secretly fond of each other right and which is almost like a little bit of a gay anthem and he he's village at the time right uh, anyway craig used to go to see nets flat all the time that was his favorite down uh, new york performer because he was such an oddball and so when he got to Toronto and we started the band, he said, I want to have a psychedelic country name because I, I want to lean towards guitar music and twang. And, you know, I want to do a couple of Merle Haggard songs. I want to do, you know, I want to have a, we wanted to kind of try and bridge pop music and country music so that there wasn't such a big divide. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, that ended up becoming what they call Americana now. Right, but uh, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to combine Neil Young guitar solos with, you know, country music with, you know, the the great, you know, some of the great power pop that was out there. We were Elvis Costello fans. We were, you know, but we loved the sixties and the lyrics of Dylan and then, you know, Eagles and that. All of that stuff kind of music meant a lot to us. Mm-hmm. So uh, we wanted to incorporate the stuff we liked, but we wanted to also, you know, kind of bring it into what was the 80s at the time. Yeah. You know? So, and we were kind of intrigued by the new, the new country artists. There was only a couple of new ones out at the time, but, you know, like after the band had started, been gone for a while, uh, we got put on a bill with this guy named Steve Hurl, you know, or like, oh man, there's more than there's other people doing. <laughs> He's done all the things to us, you know? Yeah. And that's all we travel in the States. When we first got our American record deal, we have all these people coming up to us and going like, you guys are great. We love you. And you never heard of Uncle Tupelo? <laughs> <laughs> you remind us of them. You know? Yeah. 
used to hearing people say, if you, you guys remind me of the Jayhawks. Yep. You know? And the Jayhawks, they, they, they first came to Canada. They said, uh, they said, wow. He said, we had no idea Blue Rodeo was so popular. Like, when you cross the border, the first thing they give you is a pair of skates and a Blue Rodeo record. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, well, but Blue Rodeo is so it's funny because Gary Loris now lives in Hamilton, Ontario, right? Yeah. Jayhawks. And we're good friends, and he talks about those early days of, like, you know, how, yeah, you're you guys, your name always popped up all the time, you know? And I remember talking to Jeff Tweedy. One time I brought Jeff Tweedy down to the studio to record with uh, the Jim Buddy band, and he was saying the same thing. He said, yeah, he said, you know, we'd be traveling around, and people come and tell us how they liked us, and they'd say, yeah, you <laughs> Well... You certainly emerged, the band emerged in the early 80s as, as, as you've described, a countrified rock band, but this was in the era of hair metal and glossy pop. You guys definitely stood out. These single try became omnipresent on radio with across Canada, but it set in motion a touring schedule that saw you guys headline every club, every theater, every arena from coast to coast to coast across Canada. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Basil Donovan, Please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Glass Tiger's Alan Frew, Strange Advances Drew Arnott, Chalk Circle's Chris Tate, crooner Matt Dusk, and the Box's Jean-Marc Pisipia. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. But I do want to talk a little about the U.S. experience, 1990-91, was going to be Blue Rodeo's chance to make it big in the U.S. with the release of Casino. Tons of unique and interesting experiences I want to ask you about. March 15th, 1991, Blue Rodeo performed Trust Yourself in their U.S. network television debut on Late Night with David Letterman. How did that come about? and What, what do you remember about being on The Letterman Show? Well, I wasn't on The Letterman Show. <laughs> you weren't or the band wasn't? I wasn't. Um, back then, David Letterman show only used, uh, like, just Jim and Greg played the Letterman show. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. And, you know, actually, it was kind of, it was okay because we had been on the road a long time, and we had had no break, and we were finally coming home for a couple of days, and then the Letterman show got added in and two days later we had to be in Birmingham, Alabama to start a tour with opening for Eating Brickell and the New Bohemians. Okay. And that was that tour was gonna last us, I think it was sixteen weeks. So we only had like a couple of days off. So I actually got to go home and Jim and Greg had to go to New York. Uh because back then on the Letterman show, this is before he moved to the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yep. What was customary was only a couple of members of the band would go on and play with, with Letterman's house band. Okay. So it would be Will Lee and Anton Fig and Sid on guitar. And then the, the two singers, basically, or whatever. The two, you know, sometimes it would just be one guy, you know, let's go depending on the band. Yeah. Uh, they would play with the Letterman band. So we weren't actually needed for the Letterman show. And, and we didn't get to play Letterman. And, Paul Schaefer kind of, as you note, his band kind of took over, so to speak. Yes. 
funny because Paul Schaefer and Bobby Wiseman, who went with them, Bobby Wiseman's brother and Paul Schaefer, they were friends in Thunder Bay, like, because Bobby's, Bobby's from Winnipeg. And him, uh, his brother, Howard, Howard Wiseman and Paul Schaefer were actually buddies. One time we were in playing in New York and we were staying at uh, Howard's place and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was Paul Schaefer on the other end for Howard. Well, he was very pleased to see Bobby and everything, and he had a nice conversation with Bobby, but the rhythm section ended up getting left out. Well, I know one show that you didn't... Tonight show, though. I'm going to get to that, because I know you played that, Basil, because I saw... I, I was able to pull up the, the, uh, the footage. August 13th, 1991, Blue Rodeo performed on The Tonight Show, starring not Jimmy Fallon, but the king, Johnny Carson. How did, how did this one come about, and what do you remember about uh, being on The Tonight Show? Johnny had took the night off, and his replacement, Jay Leno, was the uh, host. Ah, uh, so this was before the, the big changes when Jay Leno took over permanently. He was just a guest host at this time. He was a guest host that night, and he was very excited that we were on. He, in fact, chased us down for to autograph his record at the end of the night. That's pretty uh, good. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was great. It was, you know, at the time, you were like, wow, here we are, you know, it was, they say, oh, you can go grab something to eat in the cafeteria. And you walked into the cafeteria on that lot, on uh, the NBC lot. It was just like you're walking past all of these famous faces constantly. Uh, yeah, you're, you're looking around this famous, all these famous people. And, you know, they're just all like casually doing their thing, you know. And how about Doc Severinsen? Did you have any interaction with him? Uh, not really any interaction, but we did watch the band play, and I remember, I remember uh, watching uh, Ed Shaughnessy play and going like, "Wow, like check out that kid!" You know, we were like, we were kind of just you know enamored by all of the the showbiz stuff we were seeing. Sure, it was just so great, right? And, uh, you know, and I remember Byron Allen being in the cafeteria, and it, it was it was a little surreal for us. But, you know, it was nice, nice to be here. Now, mind you, we had already had a, you know, a, a big dose of that whole thing because we had been down there doing a movie with Meryl Streep where we did this movie, Postcards from the Edge. And, uh, uh, you know, Gene Hackman was in it and, uh, you know, all of these big stars. Annette Bening was in it. She's like one of the actors. And Shirley MacLaine, Meryl Streep. So... It was kind of back into that world. We had just come out of it, and then here we are again. We're all now we're on the Tonight Show. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. Well, as you note, know, 1990, the film Postcards from the Edge, Blue Rodeo performs with Meryl Streep during the final number. I'm checking out, which closes the film. Uh, how did that come about? How'd you end up in that film and performing? Apparently, the story goes. This is what I've heard. We were we had been on the road forever and like our record had been released in the states and we were out plowing the pavement all across uh the southern states you know texas and florida and it was kind of depressing because nobody knew who we were the record company wasn't really behind us down there atlantic records hadn't really committed to putting a big push on yet okay so we were working our butts off and we weren't seeing any results and then one day i was i remember i was in dallas and I, we get a call from our manager and he says you know uh there's this movie 
and they want you guys in it. So when you get home next week, as soon as you get home, we go to the we you go to Ottawa. We play the Country Music Awards, and then the next and we'll fly home the next morning, and you go right to the Diamond Club where you're going to audition for this movie. We go do that. We and we we thought he was joking. We thought he was just pulling our leg to make us feel good, you know, because he knew that we were going through a lot. Our manager, and he was kind of saying, "You like me in this Hollywood movie." And we were kind of like, yeah, sure we will. Right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, we get home, and of course we go down to the Diamond Club, and there's Meryl Streep and Mike Nichols standing there, right? <laughs> well, and, they, and and Meryl Streep is saying, like, uh, play the song, you know? Uh, they sent us a tape, and we learned the song, and we had a couple of different versions. We had a countrified version of it, and we had a rock version of it. A few of them both. That's only we realized that she was very serious about having us. She sang a song with us once and she says, can you guys be in LA by the 19th? <laughs> and we were like, yeah, <laughs> we could do that. We don't have to think about it. Well, their manager said they can do whatever you need them to do. <laughs> it was right there. He goes, well, don't you have like, shows? And he goes, we can cancel those shows. They're not in. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, after we got down there, we asked, we kind of asked her, like, how'd you find out about us? And she said, well, I was doing She Devil in New York. And she said, and I live in Connecticut. She said, so every day this, this limo driver picked me up in Connecticut and drove me into the city. And while he was on the drive, he kept playing this music. Mm -hmm. And it was first album. And she said, I just loved the record. So finally, I guess at the end of the week, after he had driven her several times, she kept talking about how much she loved it. He just handed her a copy. He had bought her one. And he said, here, I know you love it. Take, you know, here's your copy. So she went home and she listened to it a lot. By that time, we had recorded our second album. And anyway, when she got out to LA, Mike Nichols came in with a stack of CDs. There was like maybe about 30 or 40 different uh, or not CDs, cassettes. Okay, yeah. Stack of cassettes. And he said, here, pick one of these. And our new album was in there, Diamond Mine. And she's seen Blue Rodeo right away and she picked it up. She goes, oh, they got another one. <laughs> oh, I want this one. And she took it. Yeah. And then she said, get these guys. Right? <laughs> And so we got the call, right? Uh, she didn't even listen to anybody else on, on the thing, right? She's already kind of a fan. So, uh, yeah, so then that's when they made the arrangement to come to Toronto. And when we came to Toronto, it was the start of what, was, what is now TIFF, right? But it was, back then it was called the Festival of Festivals. Yeah. Right? And uh, they flew in on a private plane, and they didn't even have a movie in the festival. The festival was on. Nobody could figure out what they were doing in Toronto. What is Meryl Streep and Mike Nichols doing in Toronto, right? Bought it at the airport. And there was all these other stars were in Toronto, but they didn't have a movie in, in the in no skin of the game, so to speak. You know? So they were wondering why they were here. And they came down, they saw us, and they said, okay, you guys got the gig. We'll see you on the 19th in L.A. We'll send all of, you know, the information where you're staying and what, uh, and all of the itineraries and that to your manager. So we gave, she gave us a hug and said bye and thanks for uh, putting up with her. 
And the next thing you know, we were sitting on in Burbank on the, the CBS lot and we were, you know, starting to shoot a movie. <laughs> All because of this limo driver. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, well, Meryl Streep would certainly be a good answer to this next question, Basil, but who is Blue Rodeo's biggest celebrity fan? Well, there's been a few over the years, but, um, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess that that would, you know, that could qualify. <laughs> the biggest movie star probably in Hollywood. Yep. I'd have to go with Meryl. You know, we've had other other fans too, you know. Uh, I remember when uh, Jill Hennessy, you know, from Law & Order. Yep. Yeah, I remember one night we were playing in New York, and she kind of, she, you know, Law and Order was all over the TV at the time. She walked into our dressing room, got down on her knees, and bowed, said, "I'm not worthy." Oh boy, the, <laughs> the old Wayne's World move rolled on us, right? And nice, Mike Bowie. Oh wow, that is so cool. <laughs> the, you know, it's an eye door and everything, and kind of became friends with her after that. You know, if she every time we were in New York, she would come to our shows. That's pretty good. And, yeah. and I wanted to ask Basil if there's any countries where Blue Rodeo is a big hit that would surprise us. Well, Scandinavia, we did very well. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Norway, for example. Norway, we uh, our records ended up in like the top 10 of the year. Um, Why do you think? Similar sensibility to Canadians or? They really love American music. Mm-hmm. We were considered an American-ish band. You know, uh, they like they have blues is huge over there. Like the Trondheim Blues Club. Trondheim is a a town up north of Lillehammer. It's way up there in it's the land of the midnight sun. Mm-hmm. And we would play the uh, we play Oslo first, and then we would go up to Trondheim, and we sell out to Trondheim. Like, and the people, oh yeah, no, we loved your records. You know, uh, it was uh, a place where. Uh, Blue Rodeo definitely had a huge fan base. It was a hard place to get to because even after you got to Oslo, you had to like drive down these winding roads and into the North Country. It, it you know, it'd be similar to like arriving in Toronto, but your first gig was you know in a Sioux Lookout. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but but you guys were dedicated. You went to where the fans were. Oh, we did because they really wanted us there, and you know we were like, "Okay, well, here we go, Tron guy, here we come." <laughs> well, knowing that you have played around the world, what's the weirdest place or most surprising place that you, Basil, have been recognized in an airport or some weird situation? Well, it would happen. You know, it, it happened a lot in London. I'd meet people on on California on the beach. I'm walking down the beach with my girlfriend on a vacation. Not even there to play with Blue Rodeo. Some guy goes, Basil, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, they're like, oh man, that was weird. But I think the strangest night was one night I was we had we had been asked to play in uh in at a wedding for a very wealthy man who was a contractor in Canada. He's Italian and he was marrying his Brazilian bride. Okay. Just to play his wedding. So he said, Look, I'll give you a week in Tuscany at this beautiful villa and uh and then you all travel over to Siena and we'll play my wedding all right we said okay that sounds great you know it sounded like a wonderful vacation at the time so we went for it and uh when I was there I decided to take an extra week and go down and visit Rome good call good call 
go to the Vatican, you know, go to the Sistine Chapel, do all the things that you do when you're a tourist in Rome. And uh, I was sitting in this little restaurant one night and uh, the place was packed and I'm sitting by myself and this uh, couple kept looking at me. Finally, the guy gets up and he goes, are you a bass player? <laughs> I said, yes. He said, you're Basil, aren't you? I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. We're from Oakville. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife just recognized you because we do a lot of your shows, right? Why don't you come join us? Right? So I ended up sitting at the table with this couple from Oakville. Oh, wow. My meal. I thought I was going to have, you know, to sit alone, right? Because I'm on to Rome by myself, right? The rest of the band was still in Tuscany. That's great. And oh, yeah, uh, yeah this is the, one of the stranger places that I've <laughs> That's good. You make friends everywhere. Uh, on the flip side, Basil, who's your celebrity doppelganger? Who, who have you ever been misrecognized for? Oh, geez, I don't know about that. Um, are you told I look like Jack Black a lot? Yeah, I would say. That's a good one. <laughs> you know, you're... Reckon, I've never been mistaken for him. <laughs> yeah. I've been mistaken for Ron Sexsmith a lot because we lived on the same street. Okay. And... People would constantly call me Ron, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Ron. I'm friends with Ron, but I'm not him. Like, oh. And there's still, like, one guy on the street who thinks I'm Ron Sexton. <laughs> he thinks it's a, an elaborate ruse. <laughs> <laughs> well, Basil, when you're talking about Ron Sexsmith, you're talking about Toronto. And I did want to ask you specifically about your memories of some iconic Toronto venues to play. Let's start with the Horseshoe Tavern. My home away from home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the Horseshoe has been one of those places for me that uh, has lived in infamy for a long time because my parents used to go there when they first arrived in Toronto. Oh, wow. Dad went to see Waylon Jennings there, you know, because uh, my dad was a big country music fan. And, uh, and then when I started playing in country bands, I played with this band, Cliff Carroll and the Hitchhikers, one of the early touring bands that I ever worked with. And uh, I remember we we got a gig at the Horseshoe Tavern when it was still a country bar. Okay. And we played three nights, like a Thursday, Friday, and a Saturday night. And that was around the time that Stop and Tom was still playing there. Mm -hmm. And it was a big deal to, to the people in, that I was playing with. You know, I was a bit... For me, I was a I was a rock and roller playing in a country band at the time, like because I was young and I really loved, you know, playing rock music, right? But I didn't get to do it for a living, and I had a young child at nineteen, so the money for me, I had to play country music to make a living. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, I kind of wish I was that night. I wish I was playing at the Gasworks or something. <laughs> or, the rest of them, the band I was playing with, they were very, very pleased that we were playing at the Horseshoe because, you know, it was like considered the premier country room in all of Canada at the time. Yeah. And, uh, and which was great. You know, I mean, I, I enjoyed it, but, uh, you know, did, little did I know that years later when Blue Rodeo was starting, that those guys would lock onto us in a way that, uh, they just loved us. I mean, our manager had a, a place in the basement. Okay. He was, 
he had rented a room in the basement of the horseshoe for his office. He wasn't our manager at the time. In fact, he was managing a band called the Arrows. And the Arrows had just come back from a tour with Krista Berg in Europe. And I guess it had cost them a lot of money. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of issues. And he, he was actually, they were breaking up uh, or they were changing managers. And he was no longer going to be with the Arrows. So he was getting out of the business, their manager. And he was just ready to pack it in. He went down there that night. He went to the horseshoe to close up the office and tell the owners, the X-Ray and the guys who were running the horseshoe, tell them that like, hey, listen, I don't need the room anymore. Thank you very much. Okay. And on the way out the door with his stuff, we were on stage. He stopped and he watched us for a while. And uh, his wife says he came home and she said, I said, so did you do it? Did you? Because he was going to go back into real estate, which he he had been selling real estate, industrial real estate before that. And he walked in, and I guess he said to his wife, "I saw this band tonight. I know I can help them. I've got to give one last shot." And she said, "She knew right then he had quit the music business." <laughs> and uh, and he followed us around for a few months and became our manager. Oh, that's pretty good. And that was, you know, and he was a very aggressive guy. Like, he didn't take no for an answer. You know, he he wanted someone, like, when Bob Roper was working at Warner, he wanted Warner to sign us. We shot a video, and he flew, he knew, he thought that Bob Roper was vacationing on Vancouver Island. <laughs> he flew out, found the cottage that Bob was at, and basically knocked on his door. I said, you have to see this video. And basically persuaded him into signing us. You know, uh, he was he, he was a go getter manager for sure. Well, that that's definitely what you need. Now, yeah. uh, Basil, you described the Horseshoe Tavern as your home away from home, but the other place that the uh, average Torontonian would think about Blue Rodeo's home away from home is Ontario Place Forum. Originally a rotating stage, but it's uh, morphed into an amphitheater, and after many changes, it's now the Budweiser stage. What are your uh, thoughts and recollections of Ontario Place Forum? Oh, I mean, I love that venue. You know, I I used to go to see shows there all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw everybody there. I saw John Hyatt, Blondie, like, uh, you know, over the years, a lot of jazz. Oscar Peterson, uh, I saw Emmylou Harris. Like, it was a place for me that, you know, right from the get-go when it opened up. I was at the first show lighthouse with the flower traveling band played. oh wow first night so i loved going to ontario place to see shows and then you know when we got the the offer to open for murray mclaughlin uh, you know i was thrilled we were in portland maine and the offer came through we were like what we're gonna be playing ontario place we were so thrilled well and i mean since then we played a waterfront show every year uh uh, you know, the past 30 years now. It, it is certainly an annual uh, rite of passage to see Blue Rodeo uh, perform at Ontario Place through all these iterations. That's funny, though, that you were there for the uh, first one and then you're on stage yourself and, and you haven't yeah. left since. <laughs> yeah, well, I grew up in Toronto. So, like, you know, to, when Ontario Place first opened, it was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, <laughs> first concert was Lighthouse with, from Japan, the Flower Traveling Band. And, like, one of those things where Lighthouse had gone to Japan and they had opened for this band in Japan. Yeah. So they returned the favor by them opening 
out of, in Canada. And uh, it was a big deal. It was, you know, the first concert. And I went, and it was fantastic. I mean, I'll never forget it. Uh, great night. Well, the, the third iconic place I want to ask you about, Basil, is Massey Hall, now significantly renovated. Uh, have you played since it's uh, reopened? Yes, we played one show just after it opened. And what are your kind of thoughts on uh, pre, pre-renovation and what you experienced uh, after it's reopened? I mean, they did a really great job on restoring the place to its former glory. It's different backstage. You know, I got to say, I used to love the funkiness of the old backstage. I have a lot of memories back there that I can't erase. Mm-hmm. Now, I was just talking about it the other day. Um, I remember standing back there at Ronnie Hawkins' 60th birthday party, standing with, uh, you know, there's Larry Gowan and Jeff Healy in the room with Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and Hawk, myself, and Rick Danko, Leave on Helm, you know, all sitting around talking, you know, like in that little room in the back at Massey Hall. So those memories will always be with me. You know, yeah. like it being in the old, I know, rustic dressing. <laughs> and now it's all brand new downstairs. It's beautiful and everything and all of that. It's, you know, all your needs are taken care of. And, yeah. Uh, so in some ways, it's, you know, for the future, it's better. I, I still have a a lot of fond memories of the old Massey Hall. Yeah, I remember like a great before the renovation was a very insignificant night because uh, there was, you know, the Sadies were on the bill with us and, you know, Gordon Lightfoot was there and Gordon Pinson was was also there. Mm-hmm. And Travis and uh, Greg Keeler had done an album together and Gordon Downey walked in mm-hmm. and it was like not long for the world. Gord's last time on stage, I don't know if people are aware of this, the last thing he did on stage was he walked on with us and sang a little ending part to us together. Hmm. It was his last moment on stage. He came to the Massey Hall show, and he died about a month later. That memory is a big one. I mean, I remember him giving me a kiss on the lips, you know, and telling me he loved me, you know, and it was a very emotional moment. You know, and just to think of that sometimes, you know, it kind of makes me, you know, like, well, I think I'll always miss the old Massey Hall in a way. Even yeah. the new place is wonderful. Yeah. Well, it, it's great that you're able to not only have those memories, but obviously you're still making new ones now as you guys continue to play. And it's nice that you were able to play the renovated, but uh, you'll always have those. Basil, you've been so good with your time. I do want to just touch on one last thing. There's more, to, there's more to Basil Donovan than Blue Rodeo. What would surprise people about you? Oh, well, I've played with a lot of different people over the years, you know? Like, I have a band that I play with at the Cameron House in Toronto, which I can't go without mentioning the Cameron House because that's my other second home. Okay. I play there with a band called Hey Stella, which is Laurie Yates. Uh, is, Laurie was a, a country-ish singer who had a band called Zang Pango several years back and uh then she went off to nashville and did her own thing for a while and now she's back living in canada she lives in hamilton and uh i have this band with her and david baxter who was in the sharks with me and uh, michelle joseph on drums and uh michelle's played with everyone from jan arden to uh david wilcox and Eddie james and and we have this little band 
you know, we play Saturday afternoons at the Cameron every once a month. And it's a lot of fun. And, you know, we do a lot of covers. We do a lot of originals. It's just old friends having a good time playing music. And, you know, I've, I've also worked with a lot of other artists on their way up. Like, over the years, you know, Oh Susanna or Justin Rutledge or Ben Paisley come to mind where, you know, just starting their careers out. And I decided, you know, I really liked what they were doing. His friends, and the next thing I know, I was playing gigs with them. Yeah, right? and uh, I played Nazi Hall with Doug Paisley opening through Lucinda Williams. Oh, wow. Um, with Justin, you know, I toured all across Canada with him. I, I ended up getting him opening through the Jim Kay tour, which kind of launched his career. Uh, he's a wonderful songwriter and really great. Like, uh, to me, he deserves to be huge, you know. And same with those Susanna, like, I just think. Like, Susie is one of the true originals, and I just, you know, I've always loved her stuff. And I played, I, you know, I recorded, I guess, five albums with her. Okay. And I recorded five albums with Justin, and I recorded, I think, four albums with Ben Paisley. So I've not just been in Blue Rodeo. I like to get, you know, I play in the Jim Cuddy band as well. Yeah. Played on all of his records, but. I like to get out and play with other people and that just to keep it fresh. Sure. So when I come back, it's like we all try to do that. Like that's how you'll see Greg out playing with either, you know, James Cardi or the the East or whatever, right? Because it helps if we get away from each other and then come back and we have something to talk about, you know, things to relate. And, you know, we, it was always a situation when I joined the rodeo that they never stopped me from playing with anybody else like, yeah back in you know the days of punk in the way when that first started you had to be in one band without that was it. your loyalty was to that banner and you didn't dare play with another band you know when i joined the radio they, were, they did not try and stop me from playing with my friends so you know i had a lot of musical friends around the city you know, i said i remember saying to them but my priority is this band of like blue roadie was number one priority when you realize again, I tell the other people, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. So they said, well, that's good enough. You know, so go and do what you want to do. Right? So I've had a wonderful time playing music with so many other people over the years. Well, as you say, it, it does keep you fresh. And now the, the bat signal, so to speak, has gone up again, the Blue Rodeo bat signal. And uh, if you don't mind just reminding us where you're heading off next for tour and, and where everyone can best follow you guys. Well, we start on on Thursday night in Winnipeg, or in, uh, sorry, in uh, Thunder Bay. And then uh, the weekend is in Winnipeg. And that goes on to Regina, Saskatoon, uh, Red Deer, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Penticton, Kamloops, Victoria, Vancouver all the west and we finished I, I think it wraps up around december 5th or december 6th in calgary oh great well it, it gives you a, a great run and you'll be home in time for the holidays that's right that's fantastic we start up in january again oh good <laughs> you just uh, january 5th in kitchener oh great oh there's actually one i should mention there's one at the fallsview casino on december 10th and, and Basil, when fans want to follow you guys, where's the best place to go? Are you on social media or should they go to? Yeah, go to the Blue Rodeo, BlueRodeo.com. Excellent. 
I have to close with this under the heading of surreal stuff. When you, Basil, are driving around in your car and a Blue Rodeo song comes on, do you crank it up or change it up? I crank it up. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you have been great with your time, and I wish you all the best with your tour. And it uh, sounds like you're doing great. You're all freshened up. And uh, continued success to you. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners... Thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Basil Donovan, I am Andrew Applebaum. Hi, I'm Emily Roger. And I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.